We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello, it is your partner, Big Boy, interested in giving back to your community while making new connections in your neighborhood. Introducing Neighbor to Neighbor, a California volunteers network that empowers you to take action, contribute to local needs, and be a part of something bigger than yourself. Visit caneighbors.com to learn more about how you can get to know your neighbor and strengthen your community. Neighbor to Neighbor, it takes a neighborhood. Hello. Hello, it is your partner, Big Boy, interested in giving back to your community while making new connections in your neighborhood. Introducing Neighbor to Neighbor, a California volunteers network that empowers you to take action, contribute to local needs, and be a part of something bigger than yourself. Visit caneighbors.com to learn more about how you can get to know your neighbor and strengthen your community. Neighbor to Neighbor, it takes a neighborhood. Hello. Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly interview show where top chess players, authors, content creators, and accomplished amateurs discuss their careers and share stories and chess improvement tips. Perpetual Chess is a part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network, and we'd like to give special thanks to our presenting chess education sponsor, Chessable.com. For more information about the show, you can go to PerpetualChessPod.com. But without further ado, let's get to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess, Chess Books Recaptured. Of course, this theoretically is a monthly uh, book review and discussion. Uh, We took the month off last month, although it didn't end up really being a month off with all of the chess drama going on. So many podcasts coming out. So we appreciate anyone listening, taking time to hear a discussion of the book, The Longest Game by Grandmaster Jan Timmen. Regular listeners will know that Jan Timmen, in addition to being an over-the-board chess legend is a fantastic author and one of my personal favorites and joining us to discuss the book it was our guest co-host's idea is uh marco bulatovich so let's welcome marco marco to the show how are you marco thank you man i'm doing well how are you i'm well you know we're recording this friday night september 30th it's been a long week um but i'm excited to talk about this book as i think you and i uh both share an affinity for the writing of Grandmaster Jan Timmen. Absolutely, and for the history of chess, it's a perfect combination, and really, thanks for having me. It feels unreal 
uh, that uh, I've jumped directly into a fairy tale because this podcast <laughs> has given me so much entertainment over the last two years. I've been listening to it on a regular basis and suddenly here I am out of nowhere within a chess podcast. So the pleasure is all mine, really. <laughs> Thanks. Although to me, it doesn't feel so out of nowhere because we've been working on this one for months. Um, we we ended up delaying it a bit, and and but here we are. And part of the reason is there's so much in this book. Uh, just to give listeners a brief overview of the the book, The Longest Game. It's about the five Kasparov Karpov World Championship matches, and they were actually played over a pretty short span from 1984 to 1990. 144 games were played, so I think a lot of chess fans, even newer ones, know that these two titans collided a lot, but you know, here in 2022, as we discussed, like Magnus sort of hinting that the world championship cycle is too grueling, the idea of 144 games over six years just boggles the mind. But on the other hand, there wasn't as much chess um, in between as there are these days. But anyway, Marco, as I mentioned, we're both fans of Jan Timmen, and we considered some other books of his as well to discuss but you strongly pushed for the longest game. Uh, why is that, Marco? Yeah, so just to tell the viewers that uh, another one in the series discussion was Stephen Titans, because it's also one of those topics where he's dealing with chess history and uh, world champions that he knew. But since that uh, Sosonko's book, uh, that title was already reviewed, uh, I think we both agree that this one makes more sense. <clears throat> also, if you look at it, this is the greatest rivalry that chess has ever seen. Like, no contest. And it was happening at a time in the mid to late 80s when the chess was still a very popular global phenomenon. When those matches were reported in global news, they were mainstream news, unlike today. <clears throat> where sadly we are witnessing that chess is becoming a mainstream news only for wrong reasons. Like in the month that we've just lived, September of 2022. So yeah, you, that was like absolutely uh, unprecedented that pe two guys would play five championship cycles in a row in a span of six years. Yeah, just just amazing. And of course, it's so wonderful that we have someone like Jan Timmen, who's a, like a character in the story at times, to have someone of his stature, both in this is a book that contains both history and insider details, but also lots of uh, detailed game analysis. Now, I will reveal, first of all, I don't want to bury the lead listeners. We both love this book. We both highly recommend it. We'll be discussing why over the course of uh, the next hour and so or so. But I will admit that, and <clears throat> excuse me, regular listeners have probably heard me mention, Tim and Timmons Titans in particular is one of my favorite chess books of all time. Timmons Triumphs is up there too. And I do probably put this one slightly behind it only because it's less poetic. But as Marco alludes to, it serves a different goal. It just gives you so much chess history. And I think that the publishers knew in chess and Jan Timmon um, correctly identified um, a remarkable story that hadn't been told holistically. Um, and Marco, you are a historian in your day job, correct? 
<laughs> I was a historian in my other life. Uh, I was educated as one, and I was uh, <clears throat> on the path to having a full-blown career as a historian. But uh, that uh, waned <clears throat> at some point, and I switched to the corporate world. Uh, but for the longest time, yeah, I was a historian, and more specifically, a historian of Eastern Europe and Russia. And uh, this is uh, definitely a period dear to me, even from that angle, let alone nostalgia, because I was in my teenage years where all this was happening. Yeah, and you mentioned you've gotten more in, you know, as for a lot of us, your interest in chess has come and gone, but you've gotten more into chess again in recent years. But when these matches were going on, were you following them? I was indeed, because chess had the status of sports in <clears throat> the country where I was born and lived, Yugoslavia, which was also a chess powerhouse, as you know, second to only Soviet Union when it comes to the medals at the chess Olympiads and world and European championships. So chess culture was was really developed and uh, generally sports was developed and there was a lot of investment in it. Like that's how societies were proving themselves back then, especially in Eastern Europe. And this was at the level of any other sport as a, like a global phenomenon, global title match that, that the country was following. So uh, I was one of those followers, even though I was not a chess player, and um, but I was <laughs> very passionately into it, nevertheless. So were you checking the newspaper, or what was the, yes. the way to follow it? That was <clears throat> the main way of checking the daily and uh, reports from the games by our uh, top-level grandmasters. There was a commentary on the TV as well. So it was a big deal. And some of the matches, if you look at the candidate matches, were also played in Belgrade. So we were really deeply, deeply involved in it. And um, Karpov Korchnoi previously, all those, <clears throat> that rivalry also, and then the, the new one, it was quite an event for sure. Yeah, and of course, this match, especially with the benefit of hindsight, because when, when these two started to tangle in 19. 84 it was basically they were both soviet but as the years went on um karpov was considered air quotes more soviet and at some point kasparov even during the soviet union wanted to represent russia um what what i'm getting at marco is i'm curious if you had a a uh, a rooting interest as the characters in this epic match were presented this way interestingly enough I'm, I've always been a very much of a traditionalist and conservative in sports. I would support the champs. I would somehow like those people that have already been celebrated to defend <laughs> what they have managed to conquer. And from that angle, Karpov was my guy. Not because I knew much about his style, not because I knew much about his allegiance to the Soviet regime or Kasparov's rebellious nature. It was just, I'm for the current champ because I know him. He's mine. I feel like he's defending the time that, that we live together. And then these newcomers, well, really, they have to do something exceptional and I hope they wouldn't do it. So I consistently cheered for Karpov 
for that weird reason and not because I was really knowledgeable about their game, their styles and what they actually represented as characters. Because that's what we're going to also talk about, like the, the stereotypes that have been built about the match and how the, to this day most of these stereotypes persist and Timon has helped us to dispel some of those with his insights, with his first-hand knowledge and with his um, uh, nice presentation and review of the existing literature. We will see that uh, many of these stereotypes uh, really shouldn't be uh, continuously supported by by people who who are into chess. At the time, 1984, this is what I remember well. Yes, I was for Karpov, but I was fully aware that that some kind of a new chess player is on the horizon, and that was Kasparov. Because I heard that for the first time there was someone not just significantly younger than Karpov, because that was also different. If you recall, Karpov never played that match with Fischer. He was significantly younger than Fischer. And then when he was defending in the two cycles his title against Korchnoi, he was even more significantly younger than Korchnoi. This is for the first time that he is now a 12-year senior uh, to his um, challenger. And this new guy, Kasparov, I knew that he was like a physical specimen of a different kind, that his physical preparation was outstanding, and that people were talking about how fast he is or how strong he is, aside from how spectacular he could potentially be. And uh, that was also new. There was this <laughs> laughing matter when you want to say that someone is really non-athletic, you're saying you're built like a chess player. <laughs> right. <laughs> Those were the old times. And then Kasparov came and everyone was talking about like, wow, this guy is really something, you know, not just as a player, but uh, his physical preparation is next to... Uh, like he, he was amazing in that way as well and um, they were really two different worlds when they faced each other and that was how it was presented yeah. in the news yeah and as you mentioned uh, Karpov 12 years older 33 years of age when they first began to tangle and Kasparov being the young upstart uh, a mere 21 in in their first match yeah and as you say just kind of a a shooting star that just uh burst onto the scene timon writes in the book about like a moment where he thought he might be the candidate to play uh karpov in um in 1984 but uh but kasparov just rose so quickly and then those two um were were just significantly ahead of the field for year after year and um of course, it often gets cited that they played 144 games um, over that span, and uh, Karpov won 19 and lost 21, and they had 104 draws. So this is often, yeah, just incredible, often cited as a way to show just how close they were. Um, but one sort of mild spoiler, I guess you could say, although it's all in the historical record, is uh, Timon does point out in the epilogue, and we'll talk more about the first match because it's uh, historic, um, especially historic, we, sh we should say. But he does point out that 
uh, Karpov, the first match was suspended and Karpov had a two-point lead. So that uh, slightly um, skews the numbers. And so Kasparov was a, a bit better, but I mean, the matches were always so tightly contested. They were, and uh, that's precisely the caveat that, that, that Timon made, that even though it's only a two-point difference in the overall score... If you look at it, after the first nine games they played, Karpo was up 5-0. So, uh, sorry, 4-0. And then after the 27th, it was 5-0. So, basically, after that, let's say, unusually disbalanced uh, first part of the first match, Kasparov actually had a more significant advantage, advantage than the overall result shows us because he ended up with two-point difference, but he was five points down after the 27th game of the first match. Nevertheless, every single match of those five was was really tightly contested. Like, there was nothing so clear that the match would be really over way before the 24th game. Uh, everyone, every single one was pretty, pretty dramatic, including, of course, the one that never ended, the very first match that they played in 84 and 85. Yeah, and of course, you mentioned them being 24 games. That's another thing that has changed uh, since um, since those days. Obviously, in recent years, they've been sometimes 12 games, sometimes 14, but no one would dream of 24 and yeah, just to bring home uh, how close these matches were, um, after the first one, which was suspended after 48 games, again, more after, more on that later, um, uh, Kasparov won in 1985 in Moscow, 13 to 11. He won in, uh, there was, in a couple of them, there were dual sites in order to uh, share the sponsorship burden and give different chess fans a chance to see it. So the 1986 one was in London and Leningrad and Kasparov won 12 and a half to 11 and a half. Seville, Spain, 1987 was actually a 12-12 tie. At the time, they had a rule that tie goes to the uh, the defender. And then in New York and Lyon in 1990, and, and uh, Timmons' opinion is that this was the best played match of all. Uh, Kasparov won 12 and a half to 11 and a half. And of course, by then, uh, Karpov was nearing 40 um, and still just right there with, you know, one of the better, one of the best players of all time. Um, so, yeah, just uh, fascinating history. And we, we'll get more into it, obviously. But first, we're going to uh, take a break and hear from our sponsors. I've been playing a bit of Blitz lately, and whenever I'm active online, it's fun to go to aimchess.com and ask their almighty algorithm to give me some insights from my games. It scrapes the sites, the playing sites automatically, and gives you actionable intel. In my case, the real takeaway this time was I got a 7% in resourcefulness in recent games. Um, that's not very good. I need to get better at that. I need to fight harder when I'm losing in a blitz game, look for tricks. And of course, aim chess, as it highlights various aspects of your game, strengths and weaknesses, uh, shows you positions from the game so that you can practice, you can review tactics that you missed uh, and learn lots and a 
fun way when you review. So please check out aimchess.com. If you decide to subscribe, use the code PERPETUAL30. You can also use the link in the show description to get the same discount 30% off at aimchess.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Um, and we are back and we've got lots to dig into with this book. Just a very few brief details. We don't need to say much about Jan Timmen. I don't think he of course was the nine time Dutch champion. Um, I, I've gotten to interview him twice, once during the most recent world championship and then a sort of more, which was kind of news oriented, but then a more classic interview about his career. That was a thrill of a lifetime for me. Um, as such a fan of his, but founding editor of New in Chess, in addition to all of his uh, his over-the-board accolades, he played Karpov for the World Championship in the 90s while the um, title was fractured. And this book, like all of Jan's books or all of his recent ones, uh, comes from New in Chess Publishing, which means you can have you can read it on paper, you can read it on Kindle, and you can also read it on the uh, New in Chess app. Uh, Marco, what's your preferred method for reading a, a book like this? Well, I think it was just rightfully so that it has been divided into into chronological way because it actually has to go through those five cycles as they were happening from 84 to uh, 1990. And um, we are not limited to the same kind of approach. Uh, what strikes me, for example, when we were retelling a very short story of those matches and how tight they were, for those who were not following chess at the time or who were uh, learning about chess history these days, and uh, we're going to go back to just that rivalry, look how many exceptions have been made just for those five cycles. To start with, in 1984, so they f- followed the first to six wins format, which obviously doesn't put any uh, clear limitation to the length of a match, which was felt big time <laughs> in that first match because it never ended. And uh, because of the experience of that match, and let's not forget that uh, in 1978, when Karpov, for the first time, defended his title, he had to play 32 games in order to to win the sixth game over Viktor Korchnoi, and it was 6-5. So he had significant experience with it, but this was still unprecedented because they were going up to 48 games, and then it was this scandal when the game ended uh, without a winner and because that first match was basically out of the books they played another one in 1985 which followed now the sim the the different format where it would be 24 games in case of a draw the title holder would keep the titles, so Kasparov had to win, which he did 
But then they reverted back to the old Botvinnik rule, which is like, hey, if the title holder loses the title, he has a right for a rematch, <laughs> which was granted to Karpum, and that's why they played in 86 again, before the next championship cycle, which would fall in 1987. So they already played three matches prior to the 1987 cycle, only to have, because Kasparov managed to defend his title, who is his next challenger? Of course, Karpov again, but those were more exceptions made because in that uh, candidate cycle for the 1987 match, Karpov was spared going through all the interzonals and all the qualifications for, uh, among other candidates, he was granted the right to play one match against the winner of the candidate's tournament. And then the winner of that match will be facing Kasparov. So in that sense, I mean, he had a much easier way than anyone else. And yes, he won and he was again playing Kasparov. Similarly, in 1990, three years later, he also didn't have to go for interzonals. This time around, he had to play the quarterfinals, semifinals and the finals of the candidate. But at least he didn't have to go through the first interzonal tournaments. So you can say that he was privileged as the ex-title holder, in uh, all of these matches, he didn't really have to go through the usual cycle, but given how often they played, and how many of those games were played, and year after year after year, they played against each other, this was just like a war of attrition. So I cannot imagine even having him also going through a full candidate cycle in order to be a challenger again. But yeah, it yeah. was full of exceptions. The, the the whole like the whole cycle and both, all five cycles were truly exceptional and also unimaginable for today's standards, where a world champion is uh, giving away his title because he doesn't want to go through this uh, two-year cycle again, so he can play twelve games that can be even decided by a rapid or blitz games. <laughs> so, so imagine that happening back in the eighties that they would uh, give up on something like that. Not yeah. a chance. Yeah, it's a different world now, for sure. Th things have, have definitely sped up. And, and there's so much chess history in, these, uh, in this book, Marco, that I don't think we can go through the whole thing chronologically. Um, there's just so much there. But I do think that especially the 19, the first match, I do think, especially for newer chess fans, we, we got to... We've teased it a couple times. We've got to talk about the 48-game match a, a little bit. Um, so what can we tell listeners about how it is that they had a 48-game match that didn't even get finished? Uh, what's the, the brief cliff notes we could give for newer chess fans? Yeah, it's even more surprising when what we briefly touched on that after the ninth game, Karpov, the title holder, was up 4-0. So he needed only two more wins to keep the title. And after the ninth game, like public opinion was obviously now realizing that uh, they're not as equally matched as thought uh, prior to the match, but that Karpov in his speak was actually way too superior for the youngster Kasparov. 
and that this he would take care of him like so briefly maybe surprisingly too briefly but then kind of while this is what we thought originally because he, he was in his peak he's already been reigning the chess world for 10 years not just in the championship cycles but even to this day Karpov has the most term tournament victories of all time uh, so he was a dominant player and uh, this was just a proof that he was still dominant and it would take some time for Kasparov to mature and be a real contender. Then what happened is that uh, there was an unusually long series of draws that up to the 27th game, they were all draws and 27th game was another win for Karpov, which then definitely to everyone seemed that now the match is definitely very close to being over. But something, <laughs> again, unprecedented happened. We would see 21 more uh, games. We would not see another win for Karpov. In the very last, two last games, 47-48, we would see two victories for Kasparov. And at that time, score of 5-3, the match was interrupted and not just interrupted but proclaimed done and basically without a winner now at that time and to this day some of the stereotypes persist i think timon has helped us to kind of disentangle some of those uh problems not that he has offered us a definitive solution of what actually happened and why it was clear that the Soviet authorities were involved. It was clear that Kampumanes was kind of a puppet uh, uh, from that was making a decision under certain influences coming from the highest Soviet circles. But who really benefited from it? It was almost a unanimous opinion that it was all made to protect Karpov from losing this match because he is the Soviet child he is a represent true representative of the Soviet regime, unlike this uh, newcomer, rebellious Kasparov. But uh, the, the things are not so simple. And uh, I'm wondering, Ben, have you found something that, uh, that could be singled out uh, as a new, and a revelation or a different take of interpretation that you found out in the book that Timon has provided? <clears throat> because it's really, he compiled some of his first-hand experiences because he was an integral part of, of the highest chess circles of the time but also he had this historical distance uh, this was this book was published in 2019 and uh, had a pretty good review of everything that has been written so far what stands out for you when you look at that scandal <coughs> and uh, what is what is it that that Timon has offered you that that you were perhaps surprised or there's something clarified for you. Yeah, well, I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, I had never done like a deep dive on this match, but, and you know, a lot of chess fans hear about this scandalous, never-ending match. Again, 48 games, and Kasparov's just towards the end, like wearing him down by like, win one game, draw five, win one game, draw five, and slowly inching closer. And meanwhile, because he's younger and less experienced, it's like maybe he's starting to figure stuff out. So the perceived wisdom to me had been 
as as you alluded to, that they did it to help Karpov. But Timon, uh, what struck me is Timon really does a good job kind of going behind the scenes of all the negotiations and kind of debunking that also just from a logical perspective. Um, because even if, um, even though maybe everyone was saying Karpov was tired, maybe he was sick, um, of course, excuses were offered, like they they need the venue in Moscow for uh, other things. They weren't planning on keeping it for that long. Um, but um, the bottom line, as Timon points out, is, you know, sick and tired or no, and Karpov, it seems, didn't want the match to end himself. Um, he only needed to win one game. And they when they scrapped it, they announced we're starting from scratch next year, 24 games. So if they think that Karpov, if they're worried he's the weaker player, that's not really doing him any favors to start at 0-0 going to 12 wins instead of uh, going to 12 points instead of Karpov just needs to win one game. Um, so yeah, that was what struck me, Marco. Yeah, true. And uh, I mean, uh, it also tells you like how careful we should be with all those stereotypes if we want to be objective. And um, the fact that uh, Karpov also had, sorry, Kasparov also have pretty significant backing in the highest circle of Soviet Politburo uh, was often neglected. And the fact that Kampumanis, supposedly good Karpov's friend, actually did not uh, follow up on the last agreement or let's say friendly agreement between the two because Karpov to this day claims that that's not what they were talking about. And logically, as you said, it makes sense that probably the best solution for Karpov would never be to end this match without a winner when he's up 5-3. The best solution for him would be to have a certain break, to have a respite, to have maybe a week or two uh, that would save him from complete exhaustion. But he was in a position to win only one game and keep the title. And you don't need a better proof of that logic than what Kasparov himself later admitted. He admitted that his chances, had the match not been interrupted or ended, his chances were at best 30% that he would win the sixth game before Karpov did so. So it's obviously exaggerated to say that, that Kampomanis, also nicknamed Karpomanis, because supposedly he was such a defender and protector of Karpov, proclaimed the match dead and saved Karpov. Well, in so many ways, he saved Kasparov as well. And um, Timon remembers. A uh, very unusual joy in Kasparov's team when he was looking at them, like at the in the hall where the decision was officially proclaimed. To me, even when I look at the documentary footage of Kasparov coming and uh, in a very defiant manner saying that this is a disgrace, he wants to keep on with the match. What what is this? What's going on? almost feels like an act, almost feels like there was a relief inside of Kasparov as well. But it was very convenient to say that because of his two victories in a row and that suddenly the result is 5-3, that this was purely done to save Karpov, who was for sure going down and never to be recovered. That was not really what how we should look at it uh, and um, 
the fact that also like it could have been really stopped it could have been interrupted it could have been had a break but someone is leading 5-3 and needs one more game to win and suddenly we are saying that oh this match basically had never happened we are playing another one that's not necessarily a protection of carpool yeah by any means yeah so, well um, yeah yeah it's just a crazy story and you know there's more that could be said about it but um in the interest of covering more from the book um we should probably keep it moving but i hope it gives listeners a, a perspective about how unique this book is in terms of its combination of uh historical deep dives firsthand perspective but there also is tons of chess i mean this is a world-class player annotating games of world-class players and you know he kind of points out that Kasparov has written about these matches himself, um, but he takes some subtle shots at uh, at Kasparov's presentation style. It's very variation-heavy, and he suggests there might be some bias. So I haven't read the Kasparov book, so I can't speak on that, but I, I definitely enjoy this book. And, uh, and, and Marco, I think we should uh, take one more break and then uh, get to some favorite quotes. How does sure. that sound? Yeah. Okay, right. so we'll be right back, listeners, and then we'll, uh, we'll get to some quotes. Perpetual Chess is proud to be brought to you in part by our presenting chess education sponsors, Chessable.com. Of course, Chessable uses space repetition to help you learn opening sequences, tactical patterns, um, specific end games, whatever it may be that you need to work on on your game. Uh, some of their latest courses include Understanding Chess Openings Part 3 by none other than Big Vladdy, former world champion, Grandmaster Vladimir Kramnik, sharing his lifetime of expertise on uh, how to respond to various E4 possibilities. So be sure to check that out. And they have a, a free preview for Chessable Pro members. So please just remember to make it part of your routine to go to chessable.com and check out uh, all of their new offerings, which are available both for free and for purchase. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And we are back. And one quote that we should definitely share from this book is, I always like to just share the opening paragraphs. I think that, I mean, authors, uh, they often put so much time into them, even if they end up going faster later in the book. But uh, I really think that Tim in the foreword, it's got a foreword and an introduction. Uh, he sets the scene well. So he opens with, in many sports, we have seen famous duels between two eternal rivals who made the achievements of all their colleague players look pale in comparison. Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal in tennis, Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicholas in golf, Elaine Prost and Ar Ayatin Senna in Formula One racing. But never was a man-to-man -man fight so penetrating, so thoroughly gripping as the one between the chess champions Anatoly Karpov and Garry Kasparov. In a period of six years, they played five world championship matches against each other, all in all, they sat opposite each other for four full months, making 5,540 moves in 144 games. By rights, this can be called the longest game that was ever played. 
So it definitely sets the scene, and yeah, it got me hyped for the book. Absolutely, um, you know, and uh, I mean, Timon is a really nice writer on top of everything. So you can't find really a better person to do this job. Not just that he was right there, top three, just behind Carpo and Kansparov at the time when the longest game was taking place. But he's like really, really nice author, and uh, and. Um, the language uh, is amusing and uh, I have also one quote that that nicely kind of wraps up that first match uh, at the end of the chapter one he says I have always deeply regretted the termination at the moment when the match entered its most exciting phase it suddenly ended it could have become very interesting would Kasparov have been able to maintain the high level he displayed in the 48th game would Karpov suddenly have acquired new energy like in his 32nd game against Korchno in Bajo City? What openings would have been played? A lot of questions which have remained unanswered as a result of the actions of the Soviet authorities. And that's how that legendary uh, end match uh, was gone uh, into history. And uh, the rest are probably... Um, matches of perhaps higher quality of chess but to me for example it's very interesting that even Timon is citing how in all five matches there were only really four blunders made two by each Kasparov and Karpov in the very first one that lasted 48 games he did not attack anything that should be called a real blunder that's really interesting <laughs> over such a long period of time that they still had this focus and concentration that that uh, no game was decided by something that we should call a typical chess blunder i also noted something interesting that um, especially in the first half of the match how rarely they played uh, e4 opening like I, I had no idea that that the D four was the opening of choice for both of them in most cases. Like that, that's um, that's not what um, you would think of when you think of, of the later Gary Kasparov, the Crusher. Um, perhaps more for Karpo as a positional player, but not for Kasparov, and yet uh, neither of them used. E4 too often, maybe I think just two times in one of the of the matches. Like that was very surprising to me. Yeah, and we should say that the book doesn't have all of the games. I mean, it's so many games that 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 would be tough. But yeah, that that's a good point because as you know, me being born in 1977, um, the matches like chess was kind of just coming on my radar for the last match. I started playing competitive chess when I was 12. Um, and then, of course, Karpov and Kasparov, even when they weren't playing each other, were around more of the, in the 90s. And, you know, I definitely have memories of Karpov playing the Karol Khan and playing E4 and Kasparov playing the Nidorf and playing E4. But as you say, there's there's Grunfelds, there's uh, Queen's Gambit declines. Um, there's not as much uh, E4 in the uh, earlier days. But overall, I mean, there's a pretty decent variety of openings uh covered in the book although not i would say and i think this is a, the correct decision on timmons part uh not a ton of 
emphasis on the opening. Yeah. Um, I think uh, he rightfully decided not to have a <laughs> 1,500 page book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, there's a selection. He's not going through every game. In the electronic version on the new in chess app, there is an uh, uh, interactive games, uh, those that were presented in the books. Sometimes in the book he starts from move 22, because what he wanted to display and clarify really started to develop at that point in the game. In the electronic version you can follow every move from from the beginning. And annotations, uh, you would be a much better judge of the quality, but Simply for my level, I would prefer what I see here than any on of Kasparov's book. Kasparov may be the extreme case in the opposite direction where he would list variations that go over many pages. But it looks like Timon has deliberately done it. So the book is kind of attractive even to um, intermediate players like myself. Yeah, I, I agree. And overall, there's 50 annotated games, uh, 17 fragments of games in it. And he does say that he, in comparison to Kasparov and, and Kasparov on Modern Chess, uses a lighter analysis style. But I, Marco, still wouldn't call it all that light. Like, there are moments where there's a lot of variations, and that doesn't bother me. Um, but I did want to just uh, highlight that for readers. And in terms of... Uh, like what chess level can read this. I mean, that's one of the beautiful things about this book is that it it has so much value as like a historical um, piece of work that the actual chess is almost like a uh, bonus. Um, so exactly. I think if, exactly. So I think if you're if you're in it for the game and the game analysis, I do think you're probably best off if you're like over eighteen hundred or so. But you know, that's going to be the case when two of the best players of all time play each other, uh, no matter who is annotating it. Um, and you can still uh, you can still play through the games and appreciate the tension as uh, Marco and I did. Um, but to me, the, the primary value of this book is, uh, is uh, the historical perspective and the glimpses on the personality. And, you know, people can contain multitudes. You 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 read different things like uh you know, they of course had this this uh, history as fierce rivals, but then Timon will like describe a moment where they're playing cards together in the middle of like bureaucratic. <laughs> That's amazing. Yes. Yeah, I know. Bu bureaucratic meetings. So, in terms, so it's uh, and some listeners may have heard my book recap of uh, Chess Is My Life, helped out by my friend John Fernandez, the biography of uh, Victor Korchnoi, which. Uh, does not have games, although as we noted, it does comically come with a compact disc that has the games on yeah, it. Yeah. Um, but um, but that that book had a lot of hijinks in it. You know, Korchnoi was uh, a bit superstitious, but this one had a fair amount of hijinks too. That was another thing that I liked about the book. Did you? Did any of these crazy stories from the book really uh, stand out to you, Marco? But those are ones that I normally would uh, primarily read. You know, I, I wouldn't go through each detail of every game. I would glance at them. It's definitely a game book, like you said. Not that those annotations are really modest. They are quite developed. 
but uh, to me that was uh, interesting just to see the dynamic for example you know like taking over the parapsychologist from from one team to another the <laughs> the impact at, or, or the perception of impact of of people like parapsychologists from the first Karpov Korshnoi match up to uh, the basically the fourth match in Seville between Karpov and Kasparov, like having a, a parapsychologist in your on your team was almost a standard, which uh, strikes you as, as totally crazy these days. But uh, things like that uh, today unimaginable and quite normal at the time. The fact that there was no computer cheating because the computers didn't play a role at the time. But at the same time, the seconds, the spying, the betrayal, the suspicions, who was selling or telling the other team the secrets of our preparation and the constant insistence of Kasparov's team that they had a mole inside, whether it was Dorfarm, for example, whether there was a KGB man who is coming to sell the secrets from the other team, but there, it's almost like the Soviet culture displayed during all of these matches. And the secrecy and the suspicions and how they're conducting their preparation, the differences in style, then you see like this Kasparov who has energy that can like overwhelm his whole team because he never stops like a machine and then you have Karpo surprisingly getting up at noon and being right. uh, known as, as lazy basically <laughs> in, in lay terms and uh, to me that that was also quite surprising like to to hear those details that you know like if, if you have someone who like a Sparrow who studied so thoroughly every game that they played and then you send someone Carpo who relies on his natural talent and who has admittedly very poor memory which was also shocking to me like Carpo the legend has poor memory how is that even possible <laughs> but it was and um, it's uh, I have another quote uh, about that second match with Kasparov finally became the youngest champion in the history of chess because he was doing an interview after um, after the game and, and actually he reacted to an article that was uh, written about Karpov, an impression that Karpov had lost the match because he had, he had given Kasparov such good training for five months during the first match. But Kasparov said, well, the, that journalist was right. Adding, Karpo was a good teacher, but I was a good pupil. I was taking lessons for 48 games and very carefully used these lessons to prepare. But Karpov had forgotten these lessons before this match. This is pure irony, says Timon. Kasparov won the 48th game from the first match with a great display of power. But he was certainly not being taught a lesson. But if you replace the word lessons by games, then Kasparov's words contain a clear message. He was the one who studied the most seriously and prepared the most thoroughly. So, yeah, that was, uh, that was that huge difference in style, in approach. And um, obviously, Kasparov's style has benefited him greatly. And yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, hard work pays off, kids. And that's, 
Marco, Marco and I selected about three or four quotes each and we did not share them with each other. And yeah, I had flagged the exact same one just because I felt like it's so, um, it's so, uh, emblematic of, uh, the overall results of, uh, of the match. And, and as you alluded to in terms of, uh, the hijinks, you know, of course, as you mentioned, we're recording this September 30th after a month of chess drama, you know, starting with the discussion about if Magnus's prep was leaked, which we can now safely, you know, it's been debunked over and over that that was the issue in terms of the Magnus Hans Neiman controversy. But especially in light of Magnus's statement this week, um, we can say that that wasn't the issue. But to, to hear in Karpov's camp that he was so worried about moles in his camp that they weren't allowed to write down variations. That, yeah. that, yeah. that they had they had to just or do to stuff use phones memory. at some point. Yeah, like, yeah. Uh, But that's that's it. But speaking of drama, like just earlier today, I I heard Ben Feigold, your your and my favorites, <laughs> saying that uh, he doesn't agree with with the majority of people that this is not good for chess. What's been happening? Pretty much like. Every publicity is good publicity. I cannot agree with him, honestly. Like, I don't like the fact that people who know me now as a chess enthusiast are coming to me at an hour saying, oh, what's happening in chess? And it's like, what's happening in chess? Where have you been for the last few decades? Like, what's happening now? <laughs> like, there's right. like a cheating scandal and now everyone knows that something is happening. I don't think it's good by any standard for chess. I'm sorry, but I'm glad to see this, this month gone. Like yeah, that, that. I mean, to me, a negative news cycle is one thing, but what worries me, um, as was sort of alluded to in my most recent podcast with Jonathan Rousen, and I know a lot of people don't listen to, to these book recaps right away, but anyway, you guys can, can find the interview, um, is this idea that over-the-board chess might be irreparably changed. I mean, mm -hmm. the, the, tr the trust, I feel like, whether it's right or wrong, um, and it might be right, but the, the trust is being shattered and that, that's gonna fundamentally change the experience, not just at the professional level, level but at the amateur level of uh, competitive chess. And that's definitely sad to me. So yeah, I, I don't consider it. Um, I mean, I get what Ben is saying. It, 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 more people are paying attention to this story, but yeah, long term, I think most of the ramifications are not. Uh, yeah, I think it's a, it's a long term damage, and you know, segue back to to our book. Uh, if you recall Timon's explanation, why, for example, the sixth match never happened after the nineteen ninety, because they were clearly still the two most dominant players. Indeed, Karpov lost in the candidates match to Short in nineteen ninety three. But even after that, in 94, he had this spectacular win at the Linares tournament. And it was really, the atmosphere was there ripe for another match. But then financial circumstances and the fact that, that there was not enough consistency is such a supreme play of Karpov while Kasparov was like overly dominant. And the fact that what happened with Kasparov and Deep Blue in 1997 greatly damaged chess and chess popularity when we realized that even the, the best player of all times was no match for a computer did not really bring that much good to chess yeah it didn't increase interest although certainly like if you look at that from a wide lens perspective now i do feel like it was 
you know, plenty of people sort of wrote obituaries of Chess when that happened, but obviously Chess has had a nice uh, run up until this month. <laughs> yes, it did, it did. And I blame Kasparov for that 1997. He was still, according to everyone who knows anything about Chess, better than Deep Blue, but he experimented and he was he really didn't have to lose that match. So kind of he... He was speeding up the demise yeah. <laughs> of the human he, race. Yeah, but I mean, in hindsight, it does seem kind of funny. Like, you know, the, the idea that we could beat computers in chess in such a sort of linear game. I mean, we're not going to beat any... Humans are not going to beat, cal you know, uh, calculators in like a multiplication contest, no. you know. So uh, it's, you know, chess does have beautiful depth and pattern recognition. But at the end of the day, the, the computers... Um, ability to never make a, t a tactical mistake is uh, tough for humans to recognize. And now they hijack hijacked even our intuition with Alpha Zero. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> scary, scary. Well said. Yeah, that is sad. So I just have one more favorite uh, quote to share, and this also sort of goes in the uh, the hijinks department. Um, and this one, I believe, it was um, the final match. Uh, the 1990 match um, where it's towards the end and they're talking about and speaking of conspiracies. And I do think a lot of this, um, you mentioned you studied Soviet history. I do think it's, you know, it all comes from the Soviet like spirit of distrust, which, Absolutely. Of, course, yeah. which of course was well earned by the, uh, you know, by the relations between the government and its citizens. Not that, you know, no government is perfect, but um, some are less perfect than others. And, uh, and they describe there was this widespread belief that they were steering towards a 12 to 12 tie in the final match. So they have a quote uh, discussing that as they sort of are giving, as Timon is giving the blow by blow and it's building to sort of a crescendo and what he considers to be the best match. So Timon writes, um, among those who believed in conspiracies, a second theory circulated. Yasser Sarawan wrote, and he's quoting from their book, Five Crowns. Uh, Sarawan and Tisdall, who wrote about this match. Many of my colleagues sadly noted their heads with the conspiracists. When GM Velastomil Hort sa sagely intoned, Karpov will catch the 12-12 train, I burst into laughter. The 12-12 train became the catchword of the conspirationists. I didn't know that was a word, so I keep stumbling over it. I don't think it, it is. <laughs> yeah. I must admit to being slightly swayed by their arguments. So first they made him laugh, but later he did see something in them. I remember what Hort had said after the match in Seville. He told me he was convinced that the final two games had been arranged beforehand. At the highest KGB level, it was supposed to have been decided that the match had to end in 12-12, and that decision had to remain highly confidential. Um, so, yeah, it, it goes on from there discussing the 12-12 train, which uh, was debunked because um, the match did not end up ending 12-12. Yeah, and if you recall, Fisher at the time had his theory about all these games that were not just inferior to his level, which is uh, highly disputable, but that they were all uh, set up from the very beginning, that this was all like arranged in advance. Those theories were uh, circulating at a time, for sure. Um, but there was a lot of good chess there, like from what I've heard, from what I see, from what I have seen in various reviews of, of the games, um, and what Timon 
after all, is doing in this book, there is like a number of, of like uh, top level fantastic games to that will remain as examples of 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 a top top highest level in the history of chess. For sure, yeah, just so many classic games, and there's so many sort of epic struggles. I mean, obviously these guys were incredible, but I feel like in in recent world championships there have been one or two games where like if you did a graph you know the you know the evaluation graph of uh who was winning one side had a chance and then the other you know um and then maybe they maybe someone held the fort or maybe not but i felt like there were more slugfests that went back and forth in that match but there were also just beautiful ideas like uh karpov has this famous uh, knight h2 move in an endgame where it looks like an obvious pawn recapture, but he sacks a pawn for his king to get access. And sometimes it's like you've seen a game, but you don't, at least for me, don't always necessarily put in context that like, hey, this famous move that you learned a lot from or maybe used as a teacher to illustrate a concept, like it actually happened in a world championship match. And yeah. to me, that... that uh, that's always a cool feeling to put that together. It is, and I've heard of the octopus knight <laughs> yeah, <laughs> prior exactly. to reading this book. <laughs> but but it's uh, it's interesting because look, it's the fourth match, for example, in Seville, Timon singles out as the most tiring, really the most challenging for both of them, because it was the fourth year in a row that they were playing. And uh, my last quote could be from from that one where he said that Kasparov had retained his title without having showed any superiority. Rather, this result was in the tradition of the early 1950s when Botvinnik had only barely managed to shake off Bronstein and Smyslov. Interestingly, Kasparov's thoughts soon went out to the man who had given the interview in Der Spiegel. He commented, After game 23, it seemed that Dadashev's predictions had come true. The miracle of game 24 delivered chess from the snare of parapsychology. That was indeed the advantage of the outcome in Kasparov's favor, that parapsychological win back had drawn the short end of the stick. And uh, another interesting thing, how often, for example, Kasparov played an English opening in that, almost in every game with White in that match in Seville in 1987. And it was also the most dramatic. And I have to, I hate to remember that I lost a dinner back then in 1987 because I didn't know much about chess. I was for Karpov and he was leading 12 to 11 ahead of the last match where a chess player, a good friend of mine, said in total confidence, Kasparov is going to win the last one and he's going to keep the title. I was like, come on, that's not going to happen. You want to bet? Of course I want to bet. And I couldn't believe, I couldn't believe, like, is this for real? That he actually did it, that he had to win and he won the very last match. That was as dramatic as possible. There were instances where, for example, Botwinik had to draw not lose right. but that's different than you have to actually win yeah to win on demand in a in the last game of a world championship match and against uh, someone named karpov yeah. <laughs> who's known for like style that that can paralyze you if he doesn't want to lose not necessarily win but if he doesn't want to lose he's probably number one ever that can do so Kasparov did it. So by that time, I think it was clear, and Timon emphasizes this, this Kasparov's 
Hasparov has won psychological battle over Karpov. It seemed like even when he was down, when it looked like chess-wise, Karpov may have been even in a better shape, that he just couldn't finish Kasparov. That Kasparov had some resiliency that specifically was built during all these long matches that uh, eventually <coughs> produced <coughs> those four victories in four finished, finished matches. And um, even after they played that last match, one of the reasons, and I think uh, it's, it's a, a very fair argument on Timon's part that perhaps one of the most significant reasons why the sixth match never materialized is the fact that uh, despite that occasional super top level the Karpov displayed in their mutual games, it was so one-sided that of the 11 matches they played in the 90s, there were four wins by Kasparov and seven draws. So Karpov couldn't win a single one. Yeah. And that was enough for sponsors to say that this may not be so interesting to invest too much money into it. Yeah, well, when you win five in a row, <laughs> I mean yeah. four in a row, but still. Although in one of them, again, technically was a tie, but anyway, I mean. It was a tie, yeah. But yeah, still. but also uh, Father Time was on Kasparov's side, you know, Karpov getting into his, his 40s um, in the 90s. Um, but, but yeah, it's, I mean, great in, in summation, just a, a, a fantastic book. I would say it's a good one to put on your bedside. I wouldn't, you know, it might help your chest. It might not, but that wouldn't be why I, I would read it. But if you, whenever you're looking for a break from studying or just to get some, some chest culture, you can never go wrong with Jan Timmen and this book. I mean, you, as a, any self-respecting chess fan has got to know uh know some stuff about these kasparov karpov matches um marco do you have any um closing words uh you might say about the longest game i would use timon again for closing words his closing words are that in the current century they played two matches against each other with enhanced playing tempo in 2002 a four-game rapid match in New York ended in a tie. Seven years later, Kasparov beat his rival in Valencia in a rapid and blitz match. It was life after death. Their longest game had been played already. <laughs> yeah, a poetic finish. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and so listeners, yeah. So I definitely recommend checking it out. Just a quick housekeeping note. Um, next up on Chessbooks Recaptured, tentatively planning... I'm going to, I think I am up to 32 books have been discussed in this particular series, which makes for a nice bracket if you try to break the books down. So the plan is a uh, longtime friend of the pod and uh, chess bibliophile Neil Bruce is going to join me and I'm going to, we're going to make a little bracket and break down uh, the 32 books and emerge with a winner out of all the ones that have been discussed. And Neil will also share uh, what's going on with his never-ending book reading and flash um, flashcard projects. So shout out to Neil. Um, I think I can't even remember which phase of the game he's on now, but, but we'll find out hopefully at the end of October if we don't get 
uh, delayed by too much chess drama. Yeah, but he must be close to Endgame now. After uh, yeah, two I know years. Endgame is coming. But <laughs> yeah. I think he might. I actually think he's doing. He's doing game collections, uh, like logical chess, move by move, and one of the Neil McDonald books. And uh, and uh, I don't quite remember which others, but Neil will tell us all about it. But Marco, I want to thank you. I mean, you you did awesome. You know, I've uh, I had some trepidation about this book, just not not uh, reading it, but discussing it, just because it's so information dense. So this was the first recap where, like, I actually needed a little pep talk. And you, no, <laughs> it's been my pleasure, Ben. I think it was really fun and entertaining. And thank you, thank you again, like, for making this happen. I'm really yeah. flattered and feel privileged. Yeah, my pleasure. So thank you, Marco. And thanks for listening, everyone. We will catch you all in another podcast. Thanks to everyone who helps make Perpetual Chess possible. Big shout out to my producer, Matthew Passy. I'd also like to thank the Blue Wire Podcast Network, with whom we are proud to be affiliated. Be sure to follow us on social media, Beneficial1 on Twitter, at Perpetual Chess on Instagram, and or you can join the Perpetual Chess Facebook group. You can email me, ben at perpetualchesspod.com. And of course, last but not least, I'd like to give major thanks to the Perpetual Chess Patreon and PayPal supporters. Those who choose to join that community based on their level of support can do things like submit questions for guests of the show, have access to live Zoom Q&A lectures with grandmasters who often have appeared on the show going over chess games, answering questions, stuff like that. And you can even get access to ad-free Perpetual Chess if that's your preference. So, But most of all, thanks to everyone for listening and we will catch you all on the next episode. Podcast Network. Hello, it is your partner, Big Boy, interested in giving back to your community while making new connections in your neighborhood. Introducing Neighbor to Neighbor, a California volunteers network that empowers you to take action, contribute to local needs, and be a part of something bigger than yourself. Visit caneighbors.com to learn more about how you can get to know your neighbor and strengthen your community. Neighbor to Neighbor, it takes a neighborhood. Hello.